You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. I'm David. This is Duncan and uh, Daddy and Mommy and Ruben. And who are you? Perfect. Perfect. So this morning we're going to read a paraphrase from Genesis 22. (laughs) A few years later, God asked Abraham to give him a present. Abraham liked giving presents to God. He gave God his animals. They were called sacrifices. And they're a way to say, I love you to God. By this time, God didn't want a lamb or a goat. God wanted Abraham to give him something more, much more. He wanted Abraham to give him his son, his only son, the son he loved, Isaac. Put his boy in the altar and kill him as a sacrifice? How could God want him to do such a terrible thing? Abraham didn't understand, but he knew that God was his father who loved him. And so Abraham trusted him. Early the next morning, Abraham and Isaac set off. They climbed the steep, stony trail up the mountain. Isaac carried wood on his back. His father carried the knife and the coals. They built an altar and laid the wood on top. Abraham asked his son to climb on top of the wood. Isaac didn't understand, but he knew that his father loved him. And so he trusted him. He climbed up on the altar, and Abraham tied his boy to the wood. Everything was ready. Abraham took his knife, pain filling up with his heart. He lifted the knife high into the air. Stop, God said. Don't hurt the boy. I want him to live and not die. I know now that you love me because you would have given me your only son. Suddenly, Abraham saw a ram caught in some brambles, the sacrifice. God had given them what they needed just in time. The ram would die, so Isaac didn't have to. And so Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. Abraham felt his heart leap with joy. He unbound Isaac, folded him in his arms, and gave him a hug. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some next-level parenting pro tips in there. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Nelson's Friends, it's good to see you. Standing room only. Praise the Lord. It's Easter. How are we feeling? <laughs> great, great. I don't know about you, but uh, that happy day almost got me. I just love the kids, you know? They're just so beautiful. Um, so a few weeks ago, there was this New York Times article, and it was spotlighting something that's happening across the country where legislatures in places like Wisconsin and Iowa are trying to pass legislation that would actually hold librarians legally, criminally, and civilly liable for stocking books that were deemed indecent. Uh, a lot of these uh, legislatures that are trying to, to pass this are proponents are people that are like self-professed Christians, and, and what they're reacting to is this, is this belief that exposure to these ideas will lead to adoptions of ideas that don't conform to their worldview, uh, which, you know, I read a cookbook the other day, and I didn't try to base myself with butter, but uh, <laughs> that's actually not true. I thought about it. <laughs> you don't get a body like this, though, thinking about butter sometimes, so uh, keep going. Uh, <laughs> 
but you know what I'm saying. But what I find most ironic about this is that these people being self-professed Christians, uh, if you were to create a ban list of books really targeted towards children of indecent material, the Bible would actually have to be on top of most any list you create, particularly for stories like the one we're covering today. And actually, that's why we've asked our families to record the reading of these texts using the Children's Story Bible, because we wanted to highlight that dissonance uh, and between these like seemingly uh, calm children's stories, these on the facade, on the surface, these like uh, tales that we tell the little ones and we gather them around. But yet when you actually get into the stories, there's a deep darkness lurking underneath, particularly in today's story about a father who takes his son up a mountain and lays him on an altar in tribute to the God that he loves. I think that should give any decent person pause. Because what kind of God would ask of his follower to do such a thing? And what kind of follower would obey? I think these are fair questions. But I think if we're going to tease them out, the answer to these questions, we're going to have to first tease out some of the context. And by looking at the people involved in this story, I think we'll start to see and understand what the scriptures are doing. So let's start first with God. We have the Hebrew God Yahweh, this Lord over all. And the context for him in this story actually begins uh, way past this mountain, back when the earth was just a void. And the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures say that over this void, the spirit of God hovered. And then he spoke a word and what was voided became full of life. What was disordered became ordered. And now you had a whole earth. We didn't just have an earth, you had an earth full of swimming things and flying things and crawling things. And then we have a God who put a human on it and called it all good. More than that, he called it very good. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know that, that Hebrew phrase, tov meod. It is very good. And this is not just indicative of the presence of the things. Yes, everything looked really nice and in proper order. But this is also speaking to the relationship of all things. See, everything was in perfect harmony and good relationship. Man, God, and creation, they served one another. And there was beauty. There wasn't chaos. Well, there was impending chaos. You see, in the cosmos, outside of this perfect earth, in the cosmos was what we call evil. Now, evil we're defining as this. E evil is the potential for the breaking of relationships. It's this, it's this kind of vibration that's moving through, that's threatening to destroy things. So evil exists in the cosmos, and then it finds its way into the garden in the form of a snake that whispers to a woman that a fruit she was told not to eat was actually the very thing she needed to truly live. And she agreed. And so she took it because it was pleasing to the eye and seemed like it would give her wisdom and life, and she ate it, and then she gave to her husband, who did the same. And this we call sin. See, when evil, the propensity, the possibility of breaking of relationships, when human activity meets that, when human activity breaks relationships, well, this is what sin is. And so when they take of this fruit that they were asked not to eat, they are now in conflict with the God who is the sustainer of all life. But not only are they in conflict with God, but also, as the Lord points out, their relationship to the land itself, which once easily yielded its fruit, now fights them. 
And even before each other, where they once were naked and unashamed, well, now they're naked and judging. And so they have to cover themselves with clothes. Relationships have been fractured. And so what God points out, that this can't abide. And the result of these fractured relationships is eventually now the severing of them. And so the ground fights, they distance themselves from one another, and then ultimately they're pulled out of this garden and placed just outside of it, separated from the God they used to take walks with. Because evil gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it is fully matured, brings about death. And death, death is the full breaking of relationships. It's the severing of relationships. And as you go on through the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, Genesis verses 1 through 11, you see this cycle that continues over and over again where God tries to show people that he is the source of life and they can't have life without him. And time and again, they just tell him that they really don't care. And then he keeps showing them that death is what will happen if they keep just ignoring him, if they keep moving towards him in apathy. And as he stands above it, he finally decides that he's going to enter it. And so God comes down, and he comes to a man named Abraham. This is the other person in our text today. Abraham was a, was a man. He was 90-something years old. He had a decent life and a good wife. But they didn't have any kids. They were infertile. Statistics say that with the size of room inside, most of us have maybe even experienced infertility ourselves, or we know someone who has. And so we can see the kind of specter and the shadow it can put over things. But they had resigned to it, not having a child. And now in their old age, it was a lost dream until this God shows up and he tells them and he makes them a promise. He promised them that he's going to take this 90-year-old man, this 100-year-old man, his 90-year-old barren wife, and he is going to give them a son. And not only does he give them a promise, but he fulfills it. And so Sometime later, they do give birth to a son. And I could imagine what it must felt like to hold the promise of God. Every parent thinks that their child is a gift from God. But Isaac, he is a bona fide gift from God. And Abraham loves the son. And so it's some wonder then how some years later, could he find himself in a place where he takes this very baby boy that he had given up hope for and now exists and lay him on an altar and raise a knife to put him to death? You can be tempted to say, well, maybe he didn't love him, but we know that he does. In the scriptures, in this story, uh, in verse 7 of 22, when God gives Abraham this, this calling, he says, go take your son, your only son, whom you love. There is a love here. If we're honest, this honestly can be why it's so hard to follow Jesus, Yeah. Because there can be a feeling that if I follow him, he is going to call me to put to death something that I hold dear. I'll put the question another way. Have you heard the invitation of God and recoiled because it would mean putting to death something you treasure? Maybe it's your self-reliance, right? You've built a successful career. You've got enough money in the bank to last six months. 
and you feel confident in your ability to meet your needs. And so what would happen with a God who may call you to give up some of your money? Maybe it's that you've survived in this city, and so now you wear it like a badge of honor. And what if this God would call you to move back to that place you left? Why would I ever follow a person like that? Maybe it's not your career. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's your emotional armor, right? Maybe you've got these relationships and these people that you've built up, and they've become your rock. They've become your everything. They've become your support. And you know that it's probably unhealthy. You know you probably depend on them a little too much. And a God may ask you to put that relationship to death. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've walled your heart away so much and not let anyone in that a communal God who in its very being is three in one might ask you to step outside of your walls and to put to death your isolation that has so far kept you so safe, seemingly. No wonder we would reject the invitation of a God like this. And yet Abraham doesn't. He takes his son and he puts him on the altar. And this leads us to our third person in this story, Isaac. It's a weird thing. Oftentimes when you hear this story, you may be tempted to picture because you think of father's son that, that Isaac is, you know, like some hapless four-year-old, five-year-old, not really knowing what's going on, just going on for a walk for his father and then ends up in a place he didn't realize. But that's not actually what we see in the text. Uh, historically, the Jewish people believed that Isaac was around 37. Now, we don't know historically in the Bible when you look through the subtext. We do know from different verses that he was somewhere between like five and 37. Um, <laughs> But I think the point is not his age. That doesn't tell us his agency. We see, actually, his agency within the story itself. In verse 7, uh, Isaac notices something. He says this, two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac has done this enough to know that we don't have everything that we need. And he's not just allowing it to go by. He's calling attention to it. More than that, the text tells us that Isaac carried the wood for the altar up a mountain over a three- or four-day journey, which means he both had the capacity to survive for three to four days, but also the ability to carry what was a heavy amount of wood up a mountain. And not only that, his father at this point is over 100 years old. And so I would imagine, like, if someone's over 100 anything like under 60, you should be able to fight them off. <laughs> so what this all tells me is that Isaac, that this is not happening to Isaac, but with Isaac. It is one thing to think of Abraham, a man willing to kill his son for his God, but it's a whole other thing to have a son that seems willing to die for the same God. Have you heard the invitation of God but recoiled because it feels like you're being called to die? Like what would make him willing to lay on an altar to give up his life? We know later in uh, Genesis that Isaac himself has his own relationship with this God. 
And so this for him is an act of obedience. And I wonder if that's why so many of us also, again, reject the invitation of Jesus. Because what if he tries to fundamentally change me? I know I've got some broken things, you know, but they're serving me. The devil you know, right? What if a good God wants to actually make you holy, but that means he's got to do some work and some rearranging, and you can't keep going to those old wells that are killing you? I have this son, James. Uh, he was a little chocolate drop up here. Uh, <laughs> um, He's almost three. If you've been around here, you've, you've heard plenty of stories about him. And that's because fatherhood is just teaching me so much about God and myself. Um, but I was, you know, telling the first service. So he, uh, my son, think about kids. Like, you don't, you try not to compare your kids to other kids, which is actually not true. You try not to compare your kids to other kids if you know your kid's on the short end of the stick. Uh, but if your kid is better, you're like, oh, man, that kid. Oof. Um, <laughs> So, like, when it comes to, like, emotional intelligence, like, I have friends that have these little girls, and, like, it seems like they have, like, the, you know, the crayons with the 36-pack and the two rows? Like, they have, like, that layer of emotional depth, you know? Like, they're just painting with all the colors of the wind, and they're just, like, they reflect, and they think, and they ponder, and they're just like, how are you today, Father? And, like, I'm going to go draw a picture and, you know, explore my emotions. And my son has, like, the Olive Garden three-pack of crayons. <laughs> Then they give you the color, uh, and it's, it's apathy, curiosity, and destruction. Like those are his only three modes, right? And most often with the destruction is self-destruction. He is constantly finding ways to hurt and harm himself. I think it's a hobby. Um, and so a few months ago, we're, we're sitting uh, in our kitchen, and he's on this chair, and he's like, and he's like rocking forward on it, and he's right by this cast iron radiator, right? And, uh, and I see it, and I know exactly what's going to happen here. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's not like I've told him not to do this, you know? So I feel like, clearly you don't listen to me, so maybe the floor will teach you. And so, like, you know, like, if you fall, you'll learn. And so I just kind of watch as he's rocking back and forth, and then eventually he rocks, and he falls forward off the chair. But... Uh, in that moment, I had to question if I had judged correctly his distance from the radiator. I was okay with him falling on the floor. I was a little nervous about him hitting the radiator. And in that moment, my, my marriage flashed before my eyes. Like, <laughs> like I was millimeters from divorce. Uh, but thankfully, he, I judged correctly. He missed the radiator. He hit the floor. Of course, he cries because uh, he gets a little boo-boo. And then... If any of you have kids or cousins or nieces that you've babysat, you know what happens next. He got back on the chair. And, <laughs> and he just started rocking forward again. And I was just like, what is going on, my friend? But I realized in that moment, my son has a very different relationship with death than I do. Right? Like, I, I, tell you, I am legitimately scared of falling because uh, I feel like it's been so long since I've hit the ground that, like, if I slip, like, 
we're going to have to call people. It's like a whole situation. I had to call my wife on the way over here, and I said, she said, honey, do you need anything between these two services? And I was like, yes, four ibuprofen. Uh, that is not a joke. Uh, we call them daddy's candy in our house. Like, <laughs> like, death is like a specter over my life. It really fundamentally changes decisions that I make. But for my son, there is no regard of death. He lives life with such a freedom and an abatement, like a freedom of spirit, because he believes that for the most part, he has a faithful father that will keep him out of harm. He doesn't know. But, <laughs> but for the most part, he believes that, and that's been his experience. And so because of that, he can engage in life and not be scared of death. And in thinking that, that really opened this passage for me. Because when I think about what could call a man like Abraham willing to kill his son to go through with it, and what would call a man like Isaac to lay himself down on an altar and allow himself to be killed, well, then I realized that these two men must have a fundamental different understanding of death than I do. Their relationship to it is altogether different. The scriptures actually speak to this. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, which is a letter written to these Messianic Jews, these are Jews that had come to place faith in Jesus, but then had, had encountered persecution. And so there was a temptation to then re renounce Christianity and go back into Judaism. And this letter of Hebrews is writing to them to say, hold fast, do not give up the hope that has saved you. And in the middle of this letter, the writer gives these, these heroes of faith. And he talks about these, these Jews of antiquity who had placed their faith in God and Jesus, uh, who is God, and therefore have been saved. And so he says this of Abraham. Chapter 11, he says, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac, the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. The reason I avoid death is because it seems so final. But Abraham didn't see it that way. See, the only way to make the invitation of God make sense and this story makes sense is if death is in the middle. That if there is life after death and a life better than the one before it, Abraham reasoned that he served to God so faithful that even if the knife fell and his son died, that God would bring him back to life. There was life after death and so he was able to engage in faith. Back in the passage when Isaac asked about the missing uh, sacrifice, Abraham turned to his son and said, don't worry, our God will provide. I think this is the question for us then. The things that we know need to be put to death in our life, are we willing? If we're honest, so much of us are living this Frankenstein existence where we've cobbled together this life that we know is producing death. We know that relationship is no good. We know that those old habits are slowly or sometimes quickly killing us, but we can't stop because it's the only life we know. And it's terrifying to put them to death. 
We know the brokenness within us, but we cannot yield to an invitation to life through a God who loves and will restore us because death just seems too much. But what if he is faithful enough and powerful enough to overcome death? The question becomes, are you willing to die in order to live? Are you willing to die in order to live? See, the things about these stories, they happen on two planes. One, uh, they're real accounts that have happened in the history of the world. And so they show us how God moves, but also they serve metaphorically. They serve as a type of picture of what's coming. God had promised Abraham that through his son, people would be healed. And so what we see is that Isaac becomes a type of Jesus. Jesus is a long, long descendant of Isaac. And where Isaac, where Abraham put his son on an altar and the knife was stayed, God put his beloved son on a cross and the nails fell. And he was not spared. And he did die. And he was placed in a tomb. And for three days he sat there. Until the breath came back. And the stone rolled away. And Jesus walked out. And he told the people looking for him, why do you look for the dead among the living? This is the power of God. That he wants to take the things in our life, those things that need to die, and us, the thing that we, the death that we need to face, and he wants to take us and make us new. At the end of the story, as Isaac's on the altar uh, and the knife has stayed, there's, a, there's a, a rush in the thicket, and it's this ram, which is pretty good for sacrifices. There's this provision. The Hebrews passage says that in a way, Abraham did lose his son and gain him back, that he did win Isaac back from the dead. And this is what we see here. Again, that type and that picture. When we are willing to put things before God, There is a death that occurs. Don't get me wrong. There are some relationships that you really need to sever. There are some things in you that really need to die, if we're honest. But the thing is that when we enter that death, we find a newness of life. We find a provision for what we truly needed. And so when you you are able to die to the money and the number in your bank account, well, then you gain all the money in your bank account back in a way that's altogether healthy because it no longer controls you and you no longer fret at the thought of recession. When you are in relationship and you no longer need that person to be your everything and you put to death putting all your weight on them, well, then now you find resurrection life in Jesus and you become a whole person and now that person no longer has to carry your weight and they can just be your partner. You get it back, but you get it back in the way that you need it because we have a God who provides. But the question becomes, are we willing to die in order to live? The band's going to come back up And I'm going to invite you to stand with me. (laughs) Maybe you're here today and you've never been willing to die 
I would say to you that the invitation is simple. Let today be the day that you give it a try. What if today is the day that you place your trust in a God with resurrection power? And hand it over to him, all the things you've been trying to use to keep you alive. But maybe you've made the confession. Maybe you've decided to follow Jesus. And what you found, like those Jews, the letter of Hebrew writes, it's really hard. It turns out there's a lot of things deep down that got to go. And you've been tempted to turn back, to go back to your old ways of living, because at least you knew those devils. The invitation for you today, my friends, is to stand firm in the hope of Jesus. Return, return to his love and his care. He is working out life in us. So regardless where you're at, if your answer to that question, are you willing to die in order to live, is yes. And the next question that would follow is, then how do I do it? Well, Paul, writer of Romans, write this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he really can do it, that he really has resurrection power, then you will be saved. So I wonder if you just close your eyes and give a quick examine of your life. What's killing you, friend? What needs to be put to death? Are you willing to let it go? Are you willing to trust? There's a confession on the screen. And if it is true for you, I would ask you to say it. Maybe it's never been true before. That's okay. Let now be the time. And if it's not true for you, you don't need to appease anybody. But if it's true, would you join me in this confession. Jesus, we confess you are Lord and the God, the Father, has raised you from the dead. Father, we too are in need of your resurrecting power. In the light of that assurance, that confession, would you receive this assurance, my friends? The Apostle Peter writes, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed to the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. 
It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory on the honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Amen. And friends, this is why we come to the table of God to remind ourselves of the body broken and the blood poured of Jesus and to remind ourselves of his coming resurrection, that he has died, he has he is risen and he is coming again. And so this is why when we gather, for those of us who profess Jesus as their Savior and King, we take this moment to be reminded of the gift we have received. And the night he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body broken for you. Remember me every time that you take it. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this is my cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Every time you drink this cup, remember me. So now, in the example of Jesus and having examined our motives and test our hearts, we come to the table in holy awe and surrender. We receive this bread and this cup as a testimony that Christ uses the ordinary things of the world for his extraordinary purposes, the gifts of God for the people of God. And so we're going to come forward. You're going to take your communion. I'm going to ask you to hold on to it. Go back to your seat. You can take out the bread, and we're going to observe communion together. So if you have decided that you believe that you are willing to die, to live, come and take of the bread.